Hello and shalom. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I'm your host, Joe Amon. We got a great show ahead, so buckle up and hang on. Here we go. Shalom, shalom. Welcome, welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I am your host, Joe Amon, coming to you all the way from southwest Louisiana, where, hey, in the matter of about 12 hours, we will be seeing our first major hurricane of the season. Category, what they're expecting to be Category 3 uh, hurricane, major hurricane Laura will be making landfall. And uh, just for those of you who are not familiar with where we are, we are a couple of hours from the coast, uh, the Gulf Coast of Louisiana. Um, if you look on a map, the nearest uh, decent-sized city you see is a place called Lake Charles, and we are about an hour due north of Lake Charles. So uh, we're expecting to be a Category 2, maybe even downgraded to Category 1 by the time it gets here. But, you know, um, all of that is subject to change, and we are no... Uh, we are no real strangers or anything to uh, to hurricanes, but it's always interesting. Uh, winds over a hundred miles an hour, and uh, without power for days, likely. So, it's all good. It's all good stuff. But I would ask that you guys pray for the Gulf Coast, uh, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi. Uh, many people are evacuating. There are mandatory evacuations in the parishes below us, uh, but we are not in that area, so uh, we do not have to evacuate. But I sure would appreciate your prayers uh, for especially the elderly and those that are not as mobile as uh, as some of us are. And so uh, would really appreciate your prayers for that. Thank you guys so much for joining us. If it's your first time checking out Image Bearers Radio, uh, I just want to say a big, huge, friendly welcome and uh, and thank you guys for listening in. Uh, our episodes have been a little sketchy lately. As you might know, we have a uh, brand new baby. He's two months old now, uh, but still in the, hey, I don't feel like sleeping at night stage. <laughs> and uh, and daddy, I get the night shift. So I uh, hadn't been sleeping a whole, whole bunch. Uh, neither has my, my wonderful wife, but uh, we're making it happen. So forgive the duplicate episodes or replay episodes. Uh, and uh, was going to do a replay this week again, but uh, with a hurricane coming in, but decided to sit down and record uh, something for you real quick. So I trust that um, you are all doing well. Uh, if you're a, a longtime listener or if you've been listening from close to the beginning, then thank you guys so much uh, for listening. And for all your support, comments, wonderful interactions, it's all so good. I also want to thank you all, uh, those of you that join us for uh, Shabbat, each uh, Shabbat at 10 a.m. Central on Facebook or on our website, outofashesministries.org. Thank you guys so much for joining us and uh, spending Shabbat or a portion of your Shabbat with us. And if you're looking for a place to spend Shabbat, we'd love to have you. Uh, Like I said, jump in the comments on Facebook, on YouTube, uh, or if you just want to sit back and watch, you can go to our website at outofashesministries.org. Org, um, and just appreciate you guys so very, very much and uh, this wonderful community. So today we are 
going to continue our discussion uh, in the silent years. We're in the inter- intertestamental period, right? The, what was so-called the silent years, and we know that they're anything but silent. And today we are going to talk about um, the zealots and the Pharisees. We're going to try to get through the zealots and the Pharisees uh, today. And so uh, I hope that you enjoy this. I hope this has been thought-provoking uh, and a little bit challenging maybe even for you. Uh, and so let's pray before we jump into our conversation uh, today on the zealots and the Pharisees. Avinu Malkinu, our Father and our King. Father, we bless you and thank you for this opportunity to be together. You are so good to us, and I pray your protection during these storms. And Father, I pray your your order and your peace would come out of this chaos. We love you and we bless you through Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. All right, everybody. Hey, welcome back. Uh, So, yeah, this week we are going to look at and discuss the two groups, uh, two of our our last two groups, actually. Um, Before we do that, let's just kind of do a real quick, super quick review. So, first of all, a couple of great books uh, that you could uh, get if you're familiar or if you're interested, rather, not familiar, if you're interested with this kind of part of biblical history. A couple books that I highly recommend. Uh, One is a two-volume set. And it is called Judaism in the First Centuries of the Christian Era, and it is by George Foote Moore. Um, it is, you know, the first centuries of Christianity, so it is a little bit later than the time period we're talking about right now. But the time period we're talking about right now, this intertestamental period, silent year period, gave way to a lot of things that we find in the first few centuries uh, of the what we call the Christian era or second, uh, latter Second Temple Judaism um, after the destruction of the temple. Uh, the other book is called uh, Ancient Israel. Uh, this is volume one that I'm referring to, Social Institutions by Roland DeVoe. And a great book on the the kind of the, the makeup of society of ancient Israel and uh, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful stuff. So if you're interested in this discussion, uh, a couple of good books to grab. I know there's, there are others out there, uh, and uh, if I can um, if I can find... Uh, if I can find some of those things, I will definitely bring them to your attention. So we have talked about uh, the introduction of Hellenism and what that did to the Jewish people, to the Hebraic mindset as a whole, the challenges that it brought, and the five uh, Jewish responses to this new worldview and this new way of looking at God and at, at the world and at other people, um, at empire, the, the five Jewish responses uh, to this. And, and these are my categories. Actually, these categories come from Marty Solomon at the Bema podcast, uh, BemaDiscipleship.com. Everybody should be listening. It's great. Um, of course, I don't agree with everything, but hey, I don't agree with myself most of the time, right? So, uh, But Marty gives some great information. He's a great storyteller. And, and it's very easy to listen to. Um, so I, I like his categories. Uh, so the five uh, Jewish responses are ones that we find in the Gospels uh, that we find Yeshua interacting a lot with, and that's why they're really helpful to think about them like this. Sure, there are other um, factions within the Jewish community that are all trying to figure out, um, you know, the, the question is that we're back from exile, right? We're, we're back from exile. We've been back. We had this amazing, miraculous uh, defeat against the Greeks, you know, just uh, in 165, 167. 
1987, around that time, with the, the Maccabees, uh, the Hasmoneans, excuse me. Um, and so, we're, you know, everything's, everybody's jazzed and it's all good, but it's just not the same. It, you know, um, Jewish history would tell us that the, the presence of Hashem never rested in the second temple. Um, and, and so it, your home, you know, your, your home or you're at your house, but it doesn't feel like home kind of, kind of thing. Um, maybe if you've ever had a burglary, um, or I know when I was a kid, uh, we lived in a, 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 a single wide trailer with a, a big living room addition on it. And had two beautiful oak trees in the backyard, and we got a bad storm one night, and a little twister caught the top of one of those trees in it, um, and it, it fell, and the way the branches fell, it literally cut the trailer and uh, the, the living room like in five pieces um, late one night. And I remember going back, you know, I was a young kid, maybe, you know, seven, eight years old. Uh, I remember going back the next day, and it was like I was at my house, but it wasn't home. You know, it was like there was a violation there. And I hear similar stories with people who have gotten burglarized, someone's broken in, and they, they've invaded your space, you know? And so, like, you're, you're at your house, you're in your land, but it's not, it doesn't feel like it did under, let's say, like, King David, which was the golden age, right, of, of Israelite uh, nation, the Israelite nation. So, so we're dealing, and then you have this introduction of, of Hellenism, this worldview that, you're, that, that just that shakes you, where man is the center of creation, and everything is measured by, by humanity, not by the gods anymore. Uh, everything is very self-serving. And with that comes the story of empire, uh, where the, the empire or the, the government, the kingdom, basically takes over uh, rulership, and they tell you what to eat, and they educate your kids, and they take care of your health, and uh, you know, they provide entertainment for you, and those, those building blocks of Hellenism that we talked about. And so as, as Jewish people that were entrusted to preserve the covenant of the God of the universe— I think I made this statement, you know, like we, we wouldn't know, we wouldn't know who the creator is if it wouldn't be for the, the Jewish people who preserved his, his word and his Torah. And, and then those, those New Testament writers, you know, of course, Yeshua and those New Testament writers that preserved, uh, the, the words and the work of Yeshua. We, we wouldn't know, but they were all Jews, right? Except for maybe Luke, you could argue may have been, but we'll get to that later. But uh, they, they are wrestling with how do we stay faithful? How do we, how do we uh, manifest the kingdom? You know, what, what does it look like to be loyal to Yeshua or loyal to God, loyal to Hashem, and, and, and still be, uh, you know, impact the, the culture that we're in? So we, we talked about these, these five kind of main uh, responses. And the first one we looked at were the Sadducees. And the Sadducees are the priests. They are the temple priests. Um, we said that all Sadducees are priests, but not all priests are Sadducees. So the Sadducees were descendants of the uh, high priest Zadok, and through the Hasmoneans and all the, the political stuff that happened there, um, they are the ones who control the temple. And so you have the holy sanctuary, Beit Hamidash, the, the house of God, that is the only place that the Jewish people are uh, allowed to present offerings and to worship uh, in, in that sense, to meet with Hashem uh, through the priesthood, and yet it is corrupt as the day is long. Uh, the temple guard, the kind of Sadducean uh, temple hit squad of the, you know, of the temple mafia, if you want to, if you want to say that. Uh, and so you have this holy place where you're commanded to worship, and yet it is full of corruption. 
Um, and, and so the high priesthood by uh, Herod ends up being bought and sold and, uh, and, and auctioned off and ends up being the house of, uh, of Annas that kind of wins the, the lottery of the high priest. And Herod promised that the, the priesthood would never depart from the house of Annas uh, as, long as, you know, as long as Israel was in the land. So uh, all this corruption uh, in the Sadducees. But you had righteous priests. Uh, for instance, we hear about one in the, in the Gospels, right? Zechariah, the, the, uh, the father of Johanan, of John the Baptist was righteous uh, and so didn't align. He was a priest, but didn't align with the Sadducean worldview. They, they, they wore their Judaism very well. They wore their robes. They did all the, you know, they did all the, the halakha, all of the, uh, the traditions and they, and they, they were the exemplary Jews. And yet in their heart, they were massively corrupt and were playing the, playing both sides, enjoying all the benefits of Hellenism, whether it was sinful or not. Uh, and yet trying to be these, you know, these priests. Uh, and then we looked at the Herodians, which are non-priests, but that they align with kind of the political and, and social uh, viewpoint and perspective of the Sadducees. So these are normal, like you and me, everyday people, um, but they really like the, the upper crust kind of elitist, um, you know, uh, ways of the Sadducees. And so the Herodians um, are very, like the Sadducees, very Hellenistic, still um, by all accounts, quote unquote, observant Jews. And yet, you know, in their, their pride private life, in their inner heart, in their inner self, um, still love God and love their Judaism, but they also really loved Hellenism as well. And all the things that Hellenism was able to to afford them, uh, the conveniences of kind of quote unquote modern life, right? And and the art and the theater and the athletics and and the education and on all of those things. And and you know you're passing this stuff on to your children, and uh, and so it creates a, a Herodian culture, uh, very opulent, very uh, you know very image imagery driven. Which if you know anything about especially Second Temple Judaism and even uh, even some sects of Judaism today, uh, you know anything that is made in an image is, is idolatry uh, out based on, on the Ten Commandments. And so uh, there's, there's a lot of, of consternation here. And they are mostly, the Sadducees and Herodians are mostly focused around Jerusalem, uh, where the, the temple is, of course. Now, it doesn't mean that you're not going to find Sadducees and Herodians, you know, up in the Galilee or, or down the south of Israel or, you know, on the coast or whatever, but, but mostly kind of concentrated in, in that circle of influence is concentrated in Jerusalem. And then we talked um, last week slash week before last because last week aired twice. Uh, we talked about um, the Essenes. The Essenes were a group of priests, and we most scholars agree that the Qumran community, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, were Essenes. So they were priests that just they said like we're not doing this. We're not we're not being involved in all this corruption, and so um, they secluded themselves uh, out in the desert and and they became known kind of as the the children of light uh and and they were their goal was to preserve the ancient paths uh that whenever whenever you know everything broke loose and and a complete destruction came upon Jerusalem that that Jerusalem and its inhabitants were going to need someone who had preserved the path and had walked the path that could show them the way of the kingdom. And that's what the Essenes' goal was. And that, the Essenes are fascinating to me. Uh, in a way, I really identify with the Essenes. And then so we today are looking at uh, the, the last group or two groups, depending on what we get to, how much time we have, um, which are the Zealots 
and the Pharisees. So I, I love discussing the Pharisees um, and, the, and the Zealots together because they intermingle, they cross paths a lot, and they overlap a lot. And again, these are all people you're going to see Yeshua dealing with and speaking to as, as he goes about his ministry. So the Essenes are kind of out in Qumran, which is to the east of Jerusalem, just uh, north of the Dead Sea. Uh, Sadducees and uh, Herodians are mostly kind of centered in Jerusalem. So the Zealots and the Pharisees are mostly concentrated up in the north in the Galilee, right? So which should start or hopefully will start automatically kind of, you know, making your, your, your wheels turn, right? So uh, as, as that's where Yeshua spent most of his, his ministry and his time. So the, the, the Zealots and the Pharisees focused mostly up in the, in the Galilee. And the Zealots are, are really interesting people. So we've talked about kind of what was the goal of, of the, the Essenes. The, as for the Essenes, the question was, how do we bring the kingdom of God? How do we bring restoration? How do we bring the Davidic kingdom back? Like how, how do we aid God in, in doing that, right? What, what does God require of us? And for the Essenes, that was, we have to separate from corruption. We have to separate from worldly uh, ideals. And anything that's not scriptural, we have to cleanse and purge ourselves from. And we have to remain uh, clean and holy. And so like they wore white robes, um, they, you know, they mikvahed several times a day, especially those that were, uh, those that were, uh, the, the ones that, you know, copied the Torah and stuff and, and wrote, uh, they would mikvah several times a day. And so they were very devout, very, very pious. And so for the zealots, um, the question is the same. How do we bring the kingdom? How do we bring restoration? And how do we prepare for a Davidic Messiah that we expect? And where the Essenes was one of seclusion and piety, the zealots was one of divine violence. So the zealots are really, uh, really militant. Um, they are very, uh, they're, they're very aggressive. And so kind of the, the thing about the zealots is that um, if, you, if you leave a Roman alive, uh, if you pass a Roman or come into contact with a Roman and you leave him alive, then you're, you're not a zealot. You're not, you know, you're not carrying the kingdom. You're not really committed to, to the kingdom, um, uh, you know, coming and, and its fruition. And so the, the zealots, uh, uh, one section of the zealots uh, known as the Sicarii, you might have heard that term before, really specialized, uh, they're really assassins. Um, and they have these little knives that they hold in their, in their robes and their sleeves called Sicar. Uh, and a Sicar is a little, little dagger, it's a little assassin's knife. And so they, uh, they are very, very well trained. Um, and the, the kind of the main zealot compound or the, the strongest zealot compound is uh, just kind of on the northeast side of the Canaret, of the, the Sea of Galilee, in a place called Gamla. Now, you may have never heard of Gamla before. Uh, if you know anything about your Hebrew alphabet, uh, you have Aleph, Beit, Veit, right? Aleph, Beit, Gimel. The Gimel um, represents a camel. That's the word Gamla, Gimel is the word, and the word family uh, that means camel or like a hump. And if you pull up pictures, if you Google pictures of Gamla, G-A-M-L-A, you'll see that it's, it's built on a, uh, on a hill, on a mountain, uh, just northeast of the city of Galilee, and it looks like a camel's hump. And so the, the place is called Gamla. So you have uh, in the north, the, the closest kind of main town or gospel kind of referred to town would be Bethsaida. 
and um, and then so you have it's on the the edge of kind of the the north or, or western edge of the Decapolis, right? And so Gamla is this this place that was fortified. It was fortified with with walls. Um, what's, what archaeologists believe is maybe the oldest synagogue um, in Israel uh, is found at Gamla. They've done a lot of research and a lot of digging there. Um, Gamla is known uh, in in some ways as the Masada of the north. So when the Romans came through and and were about to you know kind of squash the last rebellion or, or the, you know one of the big rebellion um, before they destroyed the temple, um, they actually came in through the north. They were they were staged in Syria and came through the north, and they ran into this community at Gamla. Now the invading Roman army. Uh, is you know in the tens of thousands. Gamla at this point has about three, four thousand zealots, and so the, they sieged Gamla, and this went on for month after month after month after month after month, and the zealots just absolutely would not relent. They would not give up. And so eventually, and if you find pictures of Gamla, you can see uh, there is a watchtower up on the upper end of the wall, and down below where kind of the synagogue is, you'll see a hole in the wall, in the fortified wall. And the story goes through Josephus, um, that, which I'll, I'll talk about him in a second, that the, the invading Roman army, um, there was a, a watchman up on the tower, and he spotted Romans entering the wall. And these are case. This is kind of like casement uh, housing or casement walls. Uh, you, you see this a lot, kind of in, in the the Tanakh. When when cities are built and fortified, they're they're called casement homes. So what you have is you have an outside an outside perimeter wall, and then you have an inner wall, and in the middle are homes. Um, we see this with uh, Rahab, Rahav. Right when they went and she hung the cord out of the, the window, you know that story. So um, they actually people actually live in the walls. Now let me ask you a question: Who do you think? Which part of society do you think lives in the walls? It's the poorer of those of of the kind of the strata of society. So your most important, your leaders, your you know your politicians, whatever, are going to live closer to the city center. And then the, the poorer you get, the further out towards the walls you, you get until you're the, the absolute outcast and destitute who live outside of the walls, right? And you just kind of fend for yourself. And so there's a report that there are Romans that are breaching the wall. Now, something that's interesting about this is that um, there's a lot of speculation about how, how they would have gotten in. One of, one of the theories is that there was actually an insider in Gamla that, that actually caused the Romans to be able to breach in a certain spot. Um, because what you did is when you were under siege, you moved out of your casement houses and you filled those houses with rubble and stuff so that it made the wall super thick. One interest, other interesting note is that we, we uh, lean on this man named Josephus, right? Uh, Flavius Josephus. We lean on him a lot for... Um, for a lot of our history, and we laud him as a great Jewish historian. There's an interesting story about Josephus. Josephus writes his history much later, um, you know, several decades later. And the story goes that Josephus actually is in Gamla during this siege, and he ends. He may have actually been the traitor. No, nobody knows for sure, but he may actually have been the the the, the one. He ends up surviving 
He is a, a zealot general. He ends up surviving this siege, this attack, and gets adopted by one of the rulers of the Romans in, in uh, Israel. He thus has the Flavius part added to his name, and he becomes, for all intents and purposes, a Roman, uh, a, a Jewish, you know, a, a dual citizen. Uh, but he is adopted as, as a Roman. So in Jewish history, uh, Josephus is not looked at so well. And it'd be really interesting, you know, if you'd want to Wikipedia him and, and kind of look at his life. It's very, very interesting. So the, 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 the Romans end up uh, penetrating the wall. And the majority of the zealots, rather than die to the Romans, I mean, here's the thing. If, these, if the Romans come into your city and you're a, you're a zealot and you're fighting back, you've probably, you know, you are, are those in your, in your group, you've killed Romans, you've assassinated Romans. Heck, uh, the zealots are even responsible for uh, assassinating a high priest in the temple at one point. I mean, just absolute divine violence. The kingdom comes because we kill Rome. That is the, the zealot, uh, the zealot way. And so if a Roman comes into your, Romans come into your town, they're going to kill you. We know that. But what are they going to do to your wife and to your children, to your grandchildren, to your nieces, right? What is that going to happen? So instead of, of dying by the hands of these pagan idolaters, these Romans, most of the zealots, I, I want to say some 3000, just about all of them actually leapt to their death off of the back of Gamla. There's a sheer, almost a sheer cliff, and they leapt to their death. They committed suicide rather than dying to the hands of the Romans. So uh, we're going to talk about the zealots a little bit more after the, the break when we can come back in the second segment uh, because there's some other interesting things that I want to point out about the zealots and kind of tell you scripturally where they where they find their footing and where they, where they have their inspiration uh, for this divine violence and this being the way that the kingdom comes. So stick around for the second episode, and uh, second segment rather, and we'll be right back after the break. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the second segment in this episode of Image Bearers Radio, Zealots and Pharisees. So talking about the zealots and this major tragedy that happens at Gamla, the, the Masada of the, of the north. Um, these zealots all, you know, they perish. They throw themselves to their, their deaths, men, women, and children, in an absolutely just horrific event. Uh, Josephus somehow miraculously survives and gets adopted into the Roman uh, royalty and uh, and continues and later writes all of this this Jewish history and, and so the the Romans then begin their march at really at Gamla from Syria through Gamla down through Jerusalem where they destroy the temple and we know of the the kind of the last stand um, is at Masada and the word Masada Masada uh, means uh, fortress or stronghold or protection. Um, King David would say, Hashem is my Masada, right? My, my fortress. Um, and, and so these, these zealots, remember where they are. They live in the Galilee, right? Um, so where do they get, where, where do they get their kind of, where do they get their, um, 
the, the justification for this idea of divine violence. We talked about the Essenes, and we read, uh, we read some passages from the kind of the Essenic uh, you know, perspective and, and, and where they, they came. Uh, you know, it was um, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, uh, you know, speak kindly to Jerusalem and make straight you know, the paths in the desert. And we talked about John the Baptist and uh, you know, how, how he probably would have been close to the Essene community. And and the thing to remember is that all of these responses, all of these Jewish responses, they find justification for the way they view the world in Scripture. And, and this is this is fascinating because this is absolutely no different than than some of the the circles that we have today, denominations or uh, you know religious sects or uh, you know all the, even within the Torah community, even within the Torah pursuant community, right? Um, we have people that. Uh, that see the world, see scripture, see faith, and thereby see other people a certain way based on some scripture, but maybe not balanced by the rest of scripture. And so the you know the Essenes have their their passages, their prophetic passages that they say like this is what this is what is going to cause the remnant right. As a as a Torah community as a whole. Um, we have those scriptures. It's called the Torah, right? We, we look at the Torah in a way that causes many of us or many, you know, in our ranks to believe that, that we are the thing that's going to bring the kingdom, right? And let me just say this. I believe in Torah. My family practices Torah. I'm a teacher, et cetera, et cetera. We have a, a fellowship, all of this. But it's also really, really easy to believe that we are the only ones that have it right, Right? We have come upon this truth. Um, you know, we think we're the first ones ever to really get it right, interpret it right. And so, you know, one of the kind of main sentiments in the kind of Gentile, the Torah community, is that, well, the church has it wrong, obviously. And obviously, Judaism has it wrong. I mean, look at the shape they're in, right? And so we are the only ones that have it right. We, we're right in the middle, and we are the ones that have that interpret it right, and we are the ones that have... I mean, how narcissistic and arrogant could we possibly be, right? To think that uh, that everyone before us, you know, uh, well-intentioned, studied, prayerful um, people of God have gotten it all wrong, and we're the ones that have it right. What I want to just bring to your attention is that that is no, that is nothing new, right? That is nothing new. The zealots, um, if you ask them, hey, how do you bring the kingdom? They would have said, you kill Rome. You, you. You fight your way for it, and you bring the kingdom through divine violence. Period. And so, where they where they they get their scriptural justification, uh, one of the places is Numbers twenty five. And so, I want to read some of this um, and see you can really get a feel for the the zealot way. So, Numbers twenty five, but twenty five, verse one. It says, "And while Israel stayed in Shittim, the people began to have immoral sexual relations with women from Moab." Uh, this is the Tree of Life version, by the way. And then they invited the people to sacrifices uh, of their gods. So the people were eating and bowing down before their gods. When Israel became bound to Baal of Peor, the anger of Adonai grew hot against Israel. Verse 4, Adonai said to Moshe, seize all ringleaders and hang them before, the Adon- before Adonai facing the sun, so that Adonai's fierce anger may be turned away from Israel. So Moshe said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill your men who have been joining themselves to Baal of Peor. Then behold, a man from Bnei Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his brothers before the eyes of Moshe. 
and of the whole assembly of B'nai Israel, while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. When Pinchas, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the Cohen, saw it, he arose from the midst of the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced them through, both the Israelite man and the woman's belly. Then the plague among the people of B'nai Israel was stopped. However, 24,000 were dead because of the plague. Uh, verse 10, then Adonai spoke to Moshe saying, Pinchas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the Kohen, listen to this, has turned away my anger from B'nai Israel because he was very zealous for me among them so that I did not put an end to B'nai Israel in my zeal. So now say, see, I am making with him a covenant of shalom. It will be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood because he was zealous for his God and atoned for B'nai Israel. So can you see, can you feel, can you sense kind of how these 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 zealous Jews, these zealots, they they know that they know the story, they know the Torah, they 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 know their history, and they know that a man through divine violence stopped a plague and was promised an everlasting priesthood. Now, who is Pinchas? Right, Pinchas is the grandson of Aaron, of Aaron the the Kohen Hagadol, right. He's uh, the son of Eleazar, who is the son of Aaron. So he is in line for the, the high priesthood. And so that's where the, the promise of the priesthood comes through. But, un, but understand and see how, how these zealots, who some may have been priests, most probably were not, um, but how these zealots really, they encapsulate and they, they embody this idea of, of divine divine violence because in their eyes and in their mind and, and in scripture, right in scripture, Hashem rewards. He rewards this action of divine violence. And so they literally have a scriptural uh, mandate in their, in their eyes uh, to, to how to act and how to bring the kingdom and how to honor Hashem. And they find justification right here in the Torah. Now I want to look at the Gospels and I want to propose something to you that's just fun. I don't know, I can't prove this, I don't know if anybody can, but now that we kind of know this background, remember, where are the zealots kind of concentrated, right? They're concentrated in the Galilee, okay? And so we're going to go first to Matthew chapter 4, okay? And we're going to start reading in verse uh, 18, okay? Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, and it says, now, as Yeshua was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Shimon, who was called Kepha, or Peter, and Andrew, his brother. And they were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. So if you remember back to our discussion on synagogue and on the early Jewish education system, why were they fishing, right? We read this passage. Why were they fishing? Because some rabbi or some teacher, some moray at some point said, Listen, you're a great kid. You love God. You're never going to be a rabbi. Go home and do what your dad did, right? And so they were fishermen. In verse 19, and he, he Yeshua, said to them, Lech follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Verse 20, and immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. Immediately. That word is really important. 
Verse 21, going on from there, he saw two brothers, Jacob, uh, the son of Zebedee and his brother John, uh, and they left their boat as well. So in verse 23, it says, and Yeshua was going throughout all the Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and sickness among the people and news of him spread throughout all Syria. Okay. And they brought the sick and the paralyzed, et cetera. So Yeshua is in the Galilee, right? And he is, he calls Peter and Andrew. Okay. Where are the zealots? They're in the Galilee, right? Along with the Pharisees. Now I want to go to John chapter 18 and I want to read another passage real quick. And I want to ask some questions and just get you to do some, just some thinking. All right. Uh, so this is, let's just start at verse one. We'll read, we we'll read all of this. So when Yeshua had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which uh, he and his disciples entered. Now Judah, who was betraying him, also knew the place because Yeshua had often met there with his disciples, with his Talmudim. So Judah, having taken a band of soldiers and some officers from the ruling Kohanim and Pharisees, came with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Let's stop. So Judas, this is Iscariot, Yehuda Iscariot, comes with not Roman soldiers, according to John. These are the, 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 the soldiers that work, or the, we could call them the temple guard, right, um, that, that work for the Sadducees and Pharisees. This is, the, this is part of the, the hit squad that we talked about in the corrupt Sadducean priesthood. This is the, the, the hit squad of the Sadducean mafia, if you will, right? So he comes and, and he brings some of these soldiers and officers from the ruling Kohanim. That's the Sadducees, the ruling priests, and the Prushim, the Pharisees. Verse 4, Then Yeshua, knowing all the things coming upon him, went forward, and he said to them, Who are you looking for? Yeshua the Nazarene, they, said, they answered him. And Yeshua told them, I am. Now Judah, Judas, the one betraying him, was also standing with them. So when Yeshua said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. So again, he asked them, who are you looking for? And they said, Yeshua, Hanatsari, uh, the, the Nazarene. And Yeshua answered, I told you I am. If you're looking for me, let these men go their way. So this is the, so this is so the word would be fulfilled that he spoke. I did not lose one of these you have given to me. Speaking of his Talmudim. Verse 10. Then Shimon Kepha, who had a sword, or maybe a Sakari drew it and struck the servant of the Kohen Gadol and cut off his right ear. Now the servant's name was Malchus or Malchut, Malchus. So Yeshua, so Yeshua said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath, the cup the father has given me. Shall I never drink it? Verse 12, and the band of soldiers with the captain, the officers of the Judeans of the Judeans, not the Romans seized Yeshua and tied him up and they led him to Annas all right, which is the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Remember, I told you that, the, that Herod uh, auctioned off the high priesthood and it came to the family of Annas, right? Who is, who is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, right? And the, so the line, the home and the line, the family of Annas uh, maintained the high priesthood until the destruction of the temple. So some interesting things in here. Where are the zealots? They're in the Galilee, right? Gamla in that Galilee area throughout the other cities. So Bethsaida, Capernaum, uh, some of these we'll talk about uh, later on with the Pharisees. So he calls Kepha and his brother Andrew. 
So remember I told you about the Sakaar, the little knife? We can't think Peter drew a sword like a like a like Excalibur, right? He's not he's not drawing like a medieval, you know, there's not like a four foot sword um, you know, that's massive. Could let me just propose this just cause, and like I said we can't you know we really can't prove this nobody knows for sure but given the the context and the you know what we know do you think possibly Peter would have been a zealot would Peter would he be one of those who who would look at, at Bamibar 25 and and be fishing and just have numbers 25 have the story of Pincus going through his mind would he, would he be the one as a child in, in synagogue, in, in school? Would he be the one that, that like, that was the first passage he memorized? Because maybe his, maybe his parents or his, you know, his uncles, that's all they talked about. Could it be maybe that, you know, that, that Kifa? We, are, we already know that, that, that Kifa's the, the kind of the, the loud mouth. You know, he's brash. He's aggressive. He, you know, he jumps off the boat in a storm. Like, he, you know, he, I'll never deny you that. You know, he's that guy, right? really would fit a a kind of zealot personality. I remember when I taught this um, in our fellowship, uh, I had several uh, either military veterans or active duty military. And like, they were like, yeah, you know, like that's, yeah, yeah, that's the, that's the personality you need. That's the, that's the temperament that you have to have. Like, like they could really identify with Kifa as a zealot, um, whether, whether he was or not, we could really identify or they could identify with him because that 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 fighter mentality, right? That aggressive, uh, you know, make a plan, execute it, and 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 get after it, you know, and get on with it. Not the sit around and pray type, like not the you know, not the spend hours in worship, you know, you know, meditating and that type. Like, no, let's have a plan. Tell me what to do, boss. Let's let's do it. Let's put it into action, right? And let's let's have a result. And so they really identify with Peter, and I thought that was really interesting. I didn't expect it, but I thought it was really cool. Maybe some of you out there listening are, you know, are veterans, or maybe you're active duty, and uh, or you've, you've spent some time in the military, you have family that doesn't. You can really kind of see where that would be the thing. Like, they come to lay hands on Yeshua, and Peter just, like, he just whips out his sword. And, and not only does he do it quickly, and, you know, like, it's, it's done in an instant and all the commotion, but he's accurate. Right, he doesn't kill. If he wanted to kill the guy, he could have killed the servant, the, the servant of the Kohen Gadol. He he could have he could have killed him if he wanted, but he's he's surgically accurate with his weapon, where he only cuts off his ear. Is there meaning in that? I don't know. There might be, but for me, that's not the point. It's thinking about the people that Yeshua used. So you know, it's from a ministry standpoint, from a church standpoint. You know, we. Yeshua preached humility. You know, Yeshua preached um, nonviolence. And yet, some of his Talmudim, maybe maybe the majority of his Talmudim, may have actually been those that believed and had grown up in a, in a family and in, a, in a, like a subculture that believed that the kingdom of God actually comes by violence. I mean, think about that dynamic and think about the, the mastery of, of of Rabbi Yeshua, Pastor Yeshua, that that he could that he could take these these fervor filled that that just were bubbling with fervor. He could take these young men, and remember that a lot of these disciples probably were in their early teens, maybe even. 
So taking these 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 young men that are you know Kifa's a little bit older because obviously he's married, but taking these young men that are that are full of fervor and not much wisdom, and being able to 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 pastor them and to 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 teach them and disciple them and and you know and to hold them together. I mean, what just what an amazingly brilliant way to think about this in my in my opinion and this is not new to me other other people have said this too but peter is is quick with a sword he's accurate you know very very well could have been uh of this this zealot kind of sub subculture and so it just we we talked in the last few episodes about um what are what are the positives and negatives of each of these groups. And I, and I told you that I wanted you, as we go through these, I wanted you to um, try to figure out which one you identified with. So the Sadducees are probably the hardest to identify with, I would think, because none of us are priests. Yet, if there's any pastors that are listening to this or any ministry leaders, it may be a little easier for you to identify with the Sadducees. And I'm not throwing shade and I'm not like throwing any accusations. I'm just saying... It, it, as a pastor, as a leader, I've been in ministry my, you know, since I was in my teen, teenage years, 15, 16, when I surrendered to, to, to ministry. And so I've always kind of been the lead of stuff. And let's just be honest. If you're a Bible study leader, a teacher, a congregational leader, you know, whatever, whatever your capacity is as a leader, um, it may be, there may be times in your life when it's easy to not live what you preach, but to preach it well. And maybe your group, your Bible study, your home group, your your fellowship, you know, your church, whatever, maybe it's really growing. And yet maybe there are periods of time, obviously I'm trying to be really sensitive because I don't want to accuse anybody. Um, but just as a leader, we go through dry times. We go through times where we have to give a word, we have to teach, and yet we don't feel it. We don't feel like living it because, hey, we're human, Right. And, and maybe we buy into the culture a little too much. Maybe we, maybe we live this duality. And so maybe for ministry leaders, it's a little easier to identify with the Pharisees. Herodians, I think, is super easy for all of us to identify with. But you may be a little more Herodian than you are anything else. Some of you may identify with the Essenes. And you may think like, man, if I had my choice, I'd go live out in the woods. You know, you've seen those memes on Facebook if you're a part of that beast. You know, like, would you live, it's a picture of a cabin and a stream, you know, would you live here, you know, for a year for a million dollars with no, you know, electricity and, you know, cell phone or those stupid memes. But maybe that's you, maybe your heart is to pull away and to just get away from the drama and the chaos of the, the empire of this world, right? So maybe you really identify with the Essenes, like, give me a book, give me some worship music or whatever, give me the Bible and some worship music and just leave me alone <laughs> and I'll, and I'll talk to you if I have to. But so maybe you, I really identify with the, the Essenes. Maybe there's some of you out there that identify with the zealots. You know, as I said earlier, maybe you're, uh, you may not even be, ma- you know, a, a military or, you know, or whatever. Um, but maybe you just have that temperament that like, Hey, like I'm all for praying and I'm all for studying and, you know, listening to teachings and I'm, I'm all for that. But like, when we're going to get to business, like somebody make a decision and point me in a direction, let's go. And, uh, and, and let's do this thing. Like, you know, the violent, you know, the kingdom suffers violence and the violent take it by force. Like that's, you know, that's kind of your banner. And, and so maybe, maybe some of you really identify with the zealots and, and it's hard for, it's hard for church leaders. It's hard for congregational leaders sometimes to deal with zealots because 
sometimes you as a zealot or a zealot like want to act faster um, than what the pastor or the leader is is willing to to do. Sometimes you are so focused in in accomplishing a mission or moving forward, moving moving the congregation ahead, moving the kingdom ahead. You're so focused on that that you really um, you really kind of get tunnel vision on those things, right? You kind of get these blinders on where it's like the mission and the and the the job and the task, and that's what we have to do. And it's hard for you sometimes maybe to focus on on what's the periphery. Who is this going to hurt in the process, right? You think that a zealot who killed a Roman didn't spend the rest of their life probably looking over their shoulder, you know what I mean, in hiding, having to, to watch over their family, maybe move from their home and relocate and all these, all these things that are fallout because of the way they saw the world. And so, so the, the, positive, the positive for the zealot, let's talk about positive and negatives. The positives for the, the zealot is that they are people of action. They are, they are people who want to get the job done. Sign me up, boss. Point me in a direction. Let's get after it. And I, and I just want to say that for, for those zealots that I have and are part of our fellowship, that are part of my family, our, our, our fellowship family, I wouldn't get anything done without them because I am very much not zealot. I'm very much not of that uh, that personality. I don't like confrontation. I don't I don't want confrontation. You know, do you and and let me do me and you know we'll we'll be at peace with each other. I, I want to seek peace at all costs. Like that's my uh, almost to a fault. And yet I can look back at my life and I know that if I wouldn't have had those zealot personalities in my life at different stages, I would be stuck. And so the positive of a zealot is, is, is very much task-oriented and, and ready to move forward and ready to meet the goal. Again, the, kind of the negative of the zealot is that so many times there's a, there's a focus and a tunnel vision that deprives any acknowledgement of a periphery of what's going to happen to those around us. You know, if we, if we do this thing and we, we do this project, we do this campaign, we do this whatever, who is going to get left behind? Who is going to be hurt by the fallout? Um, you know, t- typically I found that zealot personalities are, are, they tend to not be super diplomatic, right? <laughs> Diplomacy is not a strong suit of a zealot because like, why is the need to talk? Just kill whatever's in front of you because it's the kingdom of Hashem we're talking about, right? And there's a blessing that comes along with it according to uh, Numbers 25. And so the positives and negatives of zealotry um, Yeshua used zealots, which I think is absolutely profound. And given kind of their scope, where they are, their geography, their their mindset, I think it's really important to honor those zealots in our lives and to to uh, to honor them and to promote their gift, but also to help them in being more balanced and seeing uh, some of the, the the risks that are associated with kind of how they view life. So next week, we'll get to the Pharisees, my favorite group. Until then, shalom, shalom, and have a great week. 